0: Holding Court with Mike Trevelyan and Dean Sheridan. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Holding Court with Dean Sheridan and Michael Trevelyan. Mike is a professional barrister, and I had fajitas for dinner last night. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, I don't understand why I say professional barrister, because is there, <laughs> well, I guess there are unprofessional barristers, but.
1: Oh, there are certainly unprofessional barristers. And I think it's quite nice because it differentiates me from the amateur barrister, the sort of (laughs) enthusiast who uh, just sort of buys a wig and a gown from somewhere and uh, just sort of has a go. So I quite like being referred to as a professional barrister. Yeah, yeah, they're
0: usually very like you get local amateur amateur barrister societies. Uh, Everybody just sort of gets together and and, uh, puts together a legal case and uh, tries to get someone sent to prison.
1: Yeah, that's the one. And it's a little bit like those sort of um, uh, weekday afternoon crime shows where you get, you know, diagnosis murder, and he's a sort of professional doctor but part-time sleuth, or Quincy or something like that, where you get the sort of enthusiast crime investigator, and I'm a sort of barrister equivalent of that.
0: I would say the sort of non-professional, if you're referencing Quincy, is Quincy's friend. Now, I don't know how many times you've seen Quincy, but in every episode... Quincy would go into the morgue and his friend, his like little protege who worked in in the morgue would turn around and go, oh, Quincy, I believe that it was this guy because I looked at this on the body and blah, 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 blah. And he'd be like, yeah. And then Quincy would be like, that's brilliant. But you're wrong. (laughs) Yeah. And it would happen every single week. So like part of me is like when Quincy finally croaks, this guy's going to be the end of a lot of liability claims. <laughs> a lot of wrongful
1: a lot of wrongful imprisonment. Yeah, well that's I, I always find that really funny with Quincy, because yeah, the, the assistant guy would be like, I've done like a blood spatter analysis and it definitely demonstrates that the killer is this guy. And then Quincy would be like, Yeah, but I went out to a bar the other day and I met <laughs> this guy and I think it's him. Like, okay, Quincy, well, that seems equally as credible. and yeah. um, yeah. so uh, yeah, so that's kind of the way that I approach my practice. So um if Quincy's a professional. Then so am I. Yeah. But you walk into court and you go,
0: uh, "Is that backed up by science or Quincy?" <laughs> and you're like, "Science. Oh, sorry. We have to dismiss it as evidence. Exactly. Uh, only exactly. officially Quincy-regulated clues can be used in this courtroom."
1: Yeah, it's like uh, Michael Gove said a few years ago. We've all had enough of experts. So why don't we just get uh, Quincy you know, on the case?
0: <laughs> like the actual actor. That that would pay. I mean, I'm pretty sure he's dead now. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty confident with that. Um, what What are we doing here, Dean? Ah, yeah. So um, we'll move on from Quincy, and what we like to do on this show is to discuss crazy law stories or uh, cases, um, any form of of criminal things that people enjoy to listen to, and we have a bit of fun around it. We get a little bit of an education from Michael, and we sort of laugh at the fact that these things actually exist. So, first is, well, this is case I don't think has happened yet, or at least it's been claimed was going to happen, but you might have heard it in the news. An Indian man wants to sue his parents for giving birth to him. I don't know if you've heard this at all.
1: Uh, Not this specific case. I, I vaguely recall coming across cases of wrongful birth when I was doing my studies. So I'm familiar with the concept, but not this particular case.
0: Oh, okay. So tell me about the wrongful birth cases. Have any, have any of them been uh, successful?
1: Um, from my memory, yes. It is, I think, very, very difficult to make a claim for wrongful birth. Um, but it is actually a, an issue which can be uh, litigated, which itself, I think, is, is slightly odd but the the fundamental point is that there may well be a claim available um if there's been it's normally actually against the, the the medical practitioner. So you would actually be making a claim in negligence against a practitioner on the basis effectively of of negligent treatment, uh, and uh, the negligence then led to a child. Being born. So it is an interesting and, and very, very rare uh, sort of s- s- field of litigation, but it is a thing that can be done. Yeah. Um, interestingly, there was a case where it was decided that the claim can't be brought by the child. So the person who's actually born can't bring a claim for damages arising from the fact that they've been born, uh, but it's actually the parents who have to pursue the claim for a wrongful birth.
0: Yes, so in this case, it is the son trying to sue his parents uh-huh. um and uh just a little bit of icing on the cake so this uh, gentleman um let's see what his name is Raphael Samuel from mumbai he his parents are lawyers right? so um his his mom basically sort of said, "Bless him," and was like, uh but I'd like to see him prove the fact of how it would have been possible for them to ask his permission." Before he was born. <laughs> that is a fair point. So she says, um, she said, says so actually a quote from his mom, she said, that's fine, but don't expect me to go easy on you. I will destroy you in court. <laughs> <laughs> well, fair enough. But she seemed so, quite proud of him. She said he's very happy that her son has grown up fearless, independent thinking, young man. But the thing is, all of these are he intends to sue, which is what I meant by I had seen Uh, these articles, and it is real. It is, well, as real as it can be. It's all on the BBC websites. It's on multiple sources. And uh, this gentleman is well known, Uh, I think, social media presence. And he's just sort of against... I think he did it to go against people being pressured into having children or having that pressure of you must have children in India. So he's sort of saying, you know, I didn't choose to be born. He's saying that people are having kids and it's for their pleasure. So there's a little poster. He said, uh, why should I suffer? Why must I be stuck in traffic? Why must I work? <laughs> <laughs> why must I face wars? Why must I feel pain or depression? I mean, he has a point. Why should I do anything when I don't want to? Many questions. One answer. Someone had you for their
1: pleasure. Well, that's interesting because, you know, I'm not a parent, but I would say that a lot of parents would probably say that actually having and raising a child um, is not necessarily the most pleasurable part. He He may have slightly been overselling the joy of his own existence, there it yeah, seems
0: to me i think he's saying um, that the point of conception would have been obviously the pleasure but yeah there's far more to it because they then make the choice to to keep him then afterwards knowing the financial burden that comes before i mean what do you do here when he sues them do they say okay all right that's fine you've been awarded 50,000 200,000 whatever they have in India. What do they have in India? Rupees. Is it rupees, rupees still? I don't know if it's changed. But just... Um, it just reminds me of Zauda. But anyway, we'll move on from that. <laughs> uh, so, uh, the, you know, 200,000, I, I don't know what, what, it, what it is in comparison to our money, but a lot of money. And then they say, but now I will sue you for the cost of raising you. Because surely that will be along the same lines. If he could sue them for just being born at all, then they can you know claim expenses back from <laughs> raised him or the distress that it took to push him out you know given the fact that well if it was a natural birth but even even a cesarean could be is a painful thing and has a you know a lot of issues afterwards so could they not turn around and, and use that sort of same logic to be like well you know you lived in a house for free we've paid for your education we've paid for your clothes we've paid for your food uh we we've we went through the pain of bringing you into the world, I carried you for nine months, and it destroyed my body.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, you know, that's a fair point. And I think that is just one of the reasons why this sort of litigation is clearly mad. And one of the things that I particularly like from the quote you gave me from him is that the first thing he listed as an example of the suffering of life was being stuck in traffic, which strikes me as, as probably fairly far down the list. (laughs) <laughs> of reasons why existence is suffering. So it seems as though he's probably not too badly off, if that's the the primary thing that he can think of as a reason for why uh his life is bad. But yeah, I mean of course it's absolutely mental to um try and sue your uh parents simply for for giving birth to you. As you say, there's no other way really of doing it. You can't really ask for consent. And this is exactly the sort of mad case. That if it were issued in this country, uh, would be immediately subject to an application to strike it out, or for summary judgment, um, so that it would probably never even go to trial. It would just be uh, dealt with on a on a short hearing basis, and uh, would be almost immediately disposed of.
0: Well, I, I think from the fact that this these articles came around about 2019 saying that he planned to sue his parents but there doesn't seem to be any sort of follow-up or any outcome to an actual court case and the fact that both his parents are lawyers I, i i wouldn't be surprised to believe that given his sort of views on life and uh what he sort of stands for that it would have been mainly i would say a publicity stunt
1: Well, that's the problem, isn't it? It does sound as though it may very well have been a publicity stunt. But having said that, I was actually chatting to an Indian lawyer some time ago. And he told me that the average length of time it takes to conclude litigation in India is 20 years. And it's not at all uncommon for one or other of the parties to the case to die before the litigation is concluded. And uh, it simply gets dealt with in that way through the death of the parties. Um, because the system just takes so long to uh, to work through, particularly with the appeals system that they have in India, it uh, can take decades to actually conclude a case. Why does it take that long? Do you know, or is it just? Yeah, it, there's a sort of in, there's a fairly well according to this chap there's a fairly endemic problem with corruption in the legal system there, so uh, it's perfectly possible to just effectively buy delays in the system. Uh, If you want to. So if you don't want your case to be uh, concluded, then you can just keep adjourning it and delaying it and delaying it. And then apparently there is a fairly Byzantine uh, and convoluted system of appeals in India, uh, which, again, has all sorts of built in possibilities for delay. Uh, So um, taking those two things together uh, these cases can take ages to uh, to actually conclude. I don't know what it's like if both parties genuinely want to work through the system and get it dealt with as quickly as possible. Uh, I don't know if it can be a much quicker process if they're both. Well, well I assume in this but...
0: one, given the fact that his parents are lawyers and they're sort of saying, bring it on, mm. um, that neither of them will really be holding it up. Actually, if anyone's going to hold it up, it's more likely to be him.
1: Yeah, yeah. But then maybe that statement from the mother is itself a publicity stunt. You say it's all wheels within wheels. Oh, Perhaps she doesn't want the case to be litigated. Who knows? She's like,
0: or oh, maybe she's just trying to raise her own profile. She's like, I'm a lawyer, and so is my husband, and we would destroy him. So if you want your enemies <laughs> destroyed, then please come, <laughs> then hire the services of... Samuel and Samuel. Oh, I don't know if his first name was Samuel, actually, or his second name. I need to get that back up. Or, or whether they have their own firm. Um, yeah, Samuel. Samuel and
1: Samuel. Yeah, well, there we are. So it could be like, if you want us to destroy your enemies as we've destroyed our own son... <laughs> Yeah, that seems plausible. Yeah. As a marketing tool.
0: Well, if anything, that's an even better marketing tool because they're literally like, "We're willing to destroy our own son." <laughs> <laughs> think of what we'll do to someone we don't even care about.
1: Um, yeah, so that's certainly an interesting area. Um, but I can't see that uh, actually suing the parents is going to take them, take him very far at all. Uh, I think the whole thing is possibly publicity, as you say.
0: I thought uh, an- another fun little story that I just sort of found looking at that one is uh, a set of New York parents who sue their 30-year-old son who refuses to move out. So there seems to be a great deal around, you know, what the duty of care is to <laughs> to your children or your parents and how long you could really deal with it, how long, uh, you know family will stop you from getting annoyed supposedly they tried to pay him and help him get him settled and move out but he refuses and he doesn't pay any bills so they <laughs> they they sued him
1: yeah i'm not sure again i'm not sure what the cause of action would be there because you can't just sue someone for being you know a bit of a layabout but um but this is actually a whole problem i think isn't it and there was a film about this a few years ago called failure to launch i think a, a comedy about okay. uh, Somebody who couldn't get their child to get out of of the house and actually make something of their own life, but it seems to me that there's um, there's a genuine issue at the heart of this. Actually, as you say, which is to do with the obligations between the generations within a family, and um, it certainly I think here in in England and probably also in the states, there's an ever weakening sense of uh, obligation. Uh, between parents and children, and particularly I think between children and parents as the children then grow up and it's the parents that need to be looked after. And I do wonder uh, if in the decades to come uh, with an ever ageing population requiring more and more care and uh, ever less emphasis on children providing that care as a matter of course, which is still very popular in, in Eastern countries. Um, I wonder if we will actually see more genuine litigation to do with the extent to which uh, parents and children uh, have obligations towards each other in adulthood and towards the end of their life. But um, at the moment, that doesn't seem to be a a particularly emerging or fruitful area of litigation, as far as I can tell.
0: Well, that's quite a good argument for uh, the Samuels. It's I had you, so you would look after me when I'm older, which uh, I think is good. It's, It's almost an investment.
1: Well, that's right, and there's a there's certainly a psychological element to that. Whether you have a a child expecting the child to be something of an investment, and then uh, you, you're sort of suing effectively for disappointment if they turn out to just be lounging around the house into their thirties and uh, not getting on with their own life.
0: Yeah, so that, that's where the issues is with this. Supposedly, they actually wrote up uh, an official eviction notice for their son. <laughs> 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 and uh and then his argument is that they didn't give him enough notice to when he refused to move out at the time so i'm sure that christmas in that household is fun and enjoyable and everybody laughs, laughs. <laughs> i remember the time you sued me
1: Mum. <laughs> yeah that would be a bit weird I and mean, i'm just thinking about it from a landlord and tenant sort of perspective here in the uk and uh i mean i would have thought the child. Would be a sort of licensee, so they wouldn't even have the protections of, of most tenants here in the UK. They're effectively there at the, uh, at the will of their parents, who either own the house or, or are the tenants of it. Um, whereas the child is probably um, just there as a as a license holder. So when when the license is revoked, um, they're liable to be kicked out with very little notice here in the UK. I'd have thought, but um, I suppose that's more of a moral <laughs> legal question. Well, I'm uh, glad I'm getting my own
0: place then, (laughs) because now I (laughs) realise how very, you know, you're just one step away from being kicked out by the parents. The thing is, you know, sometimes you've got to agree. I think sometimes if you've got enough money, you can just do it to make a point.
1: (laughs) Well, yeah, certainly in the States, there does seem to be an element of, uh, you know, performative litigation and uh, all sorts of strange things seem to get litigated over there that just wouldn't ever get off the ground here in the UK. But um, but yeah, I think there is an element of people just uh, having a bit too much money and wanting to spend it on something.
0: I think there also is in each different state in itself has different rules and laws and things. Uh, so what might fly in one state won't fly in another. It's not like here where you've just got like one governing. Well, is it the same here, actually? Is it different in Scotland, Wales and like Great Britain?
1: Uh, well, it's uh, the same in England and Wales. Um, and then Scotland has its own system, as does Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. Uh, so my legal work and my legal knowledge only actually extends to England and Wales. It doesn't even go any further um, in uh, in the UK. Um, but throughout England and Wales, the system is the same. Um, interestingly, I did once have a case, because uh, I do a bit of immigration work, and uh, I did once have a case where... Immigration is slightly strange because there is a degree of overlap between the laws of Scotland and the laws of England and Wales in the immigration context specifically. And uh, I once had a case of a, a client who was in uh, immigration detention. So it's kind of uh, the equivalent of being remanded in custody in the criminal context. So he'd been put in an immigration detention centre in England and he'd applied for bail. And uh, we were supposed to be having a bail hearing in, uh, in Stoke And uh, the way those usually work is that the client has a video link to the court. So I turned up to Stoke, expecting the client to be attending by video from wherever he was in his immigration detention centre. And uh, the court told me that actually the day before he'd been moved to another immigration detention centre in Scotland. So as a result, I immediately uh, was unable to do anything for him. He was taken outside of the jurisdiction of the English and Welsh courts. And uh, the solicitors had to make a fresh application for him to have bail in Scotland. So um, that was a slightly odd circumstance. He's been effectively taken out of the jurisdiction. Why
0: would they do that? Surely they'd be aware that they were taking him out of the jurisdiction, that it would mess everything up?
1: Yeah, I find in the immigration uh, context, because so much of it is done by and at the direction of the Home Office, which is just this sort of monolithic bureaucratic nightmare that the, the, that field of law is absolutely rife with incredibly weird decision making and incredibly strange things happening and um, so I, I think it was probably just a question of them having an overcrowded detention center and somebody who's not a lawyer making the decision to move him from england away uh, to scotland without recognizing the implications that would have uh, from a legal perspective
0: and also not taking into uh, account that he very, uh, very soon would have an appearance in the court.
1: Exactly. Sh- yeah, sh- having sh- surely possibly would, no idea.
0: There would have been surely there would have been people in there that that didn't need to stay or had longer to um, to get that together to uh, sort out that. Um, that sort of uh, appointment and then they they choose him and he's literally meant to be there that day and they just moved <laughs> to Scotland.
1: Yeah, well you're absolutely right. I'm sure if there was a bit more joined up thinking they could have uh, done it in a different way. But um but yeah, it was just a very very odd decision. Uh, I never got to the bottom of how it happened. Um but it will undoubtedly be some bureaucrat somewhere in the Home Office making these sorts of decisions without thinking about the full consequences.
0: Well, while we're on Scotland that leads directly into our next case which is ah, about that. about McDonald's <laughs> excellent i've heard of McDonald's yes and you might have heard of this case of the lady uh, Sheila Liebeck who became famous uh, because um oh sorry Stella Liebeck my eyesight's not that great uh, Stella Liebeck who became famous because uh, she sued McDonald's and had them shell out 2.9 million in damages because they gave her a, a cup of coffee and uh, when they drove away, it, it spilt and uh, burnt her. So she sued McDonald's. Have you heard this one? I, I
1: have. I actually had thought that this was something of an urban myth. So I'm delighted that your research has turned out that it's actually a genuine case. That's well, that's surprising.
0: Well, there are some aspects which I was going to get to. I thought we'll ah. just, we'll discuss on this urban myth style and then we'll go deeper into the case with some other information that I did manage to unearth when looking it up. So this is from a a book I have been lent uh, about crazy court cases where I I found this story. Uh, It was also raised by Paul Lewis, one of our listeners, who asked us to discuss this case. So when I saw it, I uh, I thought it was crazy. Uh, 1992. It was. She was 79 years old. She spilled a cup of McDonald's coffee in her lap or sat in the passenger seat of her grandson's car. And according to her attorneys, as a result of the spill, Mrs. Liebeck suffered severe burns over 6% of her body and had to undergo several skin grafts. She was also left with scarring on 15% of her body. So, yeah, the case made headlines across the world, and she sued for 2.9 million. So on the face of what is there... I mean, the concept that she spilled some coffee and therefore sued them. I mean, that is crazy. I mean, you expect coffee to be hot, which is obviously, I guess, the source of uh, fame of this case that people would assume that when you buy a hot beverage that they wish for it to be hot. And therefore, if you were to take the lid off this hot beverage and bathe in it, then um, (laughs) it would definitely cause some discomfort.
1: Yeah, there are a couple of things that I find surprising about this. One, absolutely, is the point that hot drinks are hot. So it's not entirely clear to me at the moment, um, and there may be further facts that you have to uh, to uh, present that will change this, but it's not entirely clear to me at the moment what the allegation against McDonald's specifically was that would have given rise to uh, a case, let alone a case with a real prospect of success. But the second point, um, just as a matter of fact, I find very interesting mm-hmm. is the extent of this lady's injuries 60% burns and 15% scarring.
0: No, 6% of her body. Uh, right. There were severe burns over 6% of her body uh, and had to undergo several skin grafts. She was left with scarring on 15% of her body. So she burnt 6%, scarred 15%. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that 15% takes into the 6%. So, yes, yeah, so I was going
1: to say that seems slightly odd to, to end up with scarring on more than double the, the amount of your body that got burnt yeah. in the first place. Uh,
0: yeah, so I think she burnt 6% of the 15%, I would assume, and therefore, and then the rest was uh, scarred.
1: Mm, mm. But that by itself is strange because, you know, how big is this cup of coffee? I know. I've and, and when- spilled drinks on myself. But I've been fully clothed. And therefore it's been really nothing more than a mild inconvenience.
0: And she's seventy-nine years old, so I'm not I'm not getting like tank top and like, you know, short mini skirt. Maybe, maybe that's maybe maybe I'm being ageist. And uh Yeah, maybe. And so um, I'm just, I'm just like, you know, it's a like, fair observation. I mean, if she wants to, if that's how she rolls, then you know, all the power to her. But she was in her grandson's car. Um, and then, and then you've got to think to yourself: like I've been for a McDonald's drive-through, or even if it wasn't a drive-through, even if it was, uh, I think it was a drive-through actually. When I, I read more about it later, and um, you, you drive pretty slowly, even if there's no one there, it's not like you you whiz round and then stop and then whiz off. It's not a ski electric. So, no, I don't. But so. Sorry, carry on. So if I just mean if she's well, depending on where she's holding it, I mean it would be a very quick thing, and uh, it tends to cool relatively quickly. The only thing I can imagine that would carry that kind of heat for a longer amount of time is maybe a black coffee.
1: And That's all I can get from that. Yeah, but even even say so, like you say, you would expect it to cool down, and if the because this goes back to the, the point I was saying about I'm not sure what the complaint against McDonald's is, because if it was the case that the grandson was something of a boy racer and was zooming around this uh, this drive-through at a rate of uh, of knots to slightly mix my modes of transportation, um, <laughs> then you might have a complaint against the grandson, mightn't you? But that, that also wouldn't be McDonald's fault. So again, you sort of come back to the point of I'm not entirely sure what McDonald's is said to have done wrong there. Uh, so, yeah.
0: So let's move on to what I sort of researched afterwards. and Excellent. Uh, So you are on something with the idea of urban myth, but it's not a complete urban myth. It's, and it's not quite as far away as our f- fateful murder of the um, flamingos a, a few uh, <laughs> episodes ago. It's, it's, it, uh, it's an infamous tale, a frivolous lawsuit. I mean, it even has its own award uh called the stellar awards named after her which is uh, presented annually to uh ridiculous lawsuits so i might have to look these up <laughs> to get who, some uh,
1: who's the awarding body who, it, who decides who to get
0: it doesn't say but I, I will be definitely doing some more research into this because it sounds like it's right up our alley on this absolutely podcast. um yeah. So, yeah um so yeah, so the story goes that the woman orders coffee at McDonald's, drive through spills it on herself, sues the fast food restaurant because it was hot. And people love to bash the woman because, well, you know, everyone knows it's hot. Uh, but the fact is, it's, it's slightly different. So she was the passenger in the seat of grandson's car. That was true. She wasn't driving. But uh, the car wasn't in motion. As, as she added cream and sugar to the styrofoam cup holding her beverage, that's when the coffee spilt. So he didn't drive along, it didn't fall out. So at that point, I thought, well, as I was reading it, I was thinking, okay, this seems to make her more liable because she's yes. obviously taken the lid off and therefore it's in less of uh, less safe environment when it, you know. Uh, so it, it sweatpants she was wearing, so there was no mini skirt, and it absorbed the coffee. <laughs> <laughs> she had a third-degree burns covering six percent of her body that required a skin graft. But um, it's all true. But the reason, so this is the reason. This is the claim against McDonald's, which we were talking about, which always gets missed out. This is the. The, the yes, thing. this is the key. This I is think. the key. This is sorry. This is this is like the big twist at the end of an episode of Quincy. <laughs> <laughs> Unlock
1: the mystery for me, dude. The
0: so the mystery. reason for the severe injuries is that McDonald's coffee is kept at around 185 degrees. So even though the beverage presents a severe burn hazard. It, whenever the temperature gets over 140 degrees had the coffee been served at 155 degrees the damage wouldn't have been so bad uh, but at 180 degrees it caused a full thickness burn to human skin in a matter of 2.7 seconds so in a defense mcdonald's argue that customers bought their coffee to consume elsewhere but in their own research actually it proved that people do drink it uh, are most likely to drink it immediately so yeah the jury awarded uh her the claim so because home brewed coffee is usually around 150 degrees so the actual sue i mean i still think it's a pretty crazy case but um the uh home but basically the the brew um is at 185
1: degrees which is above the normal home brew heat ah well that makes sense then i can understand at least why mcdonald's are said to be responsible for it. I I do take your point that, um, you know, people would still expect hot beverages to be hot, but I suppose, like you were saying, the effect of the extra 30 odd degrees is quite profound that it suddenly leads to uh, almost instantaneous uh, deep burns. So I can understand the complaints against McDonald's in that respect. Um, I mean, yeah, I take the point, I suppose, that McDonald's, you know, want people to enjoy their drinks hot, And so it needs to be hotter than average. But actually, I'm coming around having some sympathy for this lady. If McDonald's want to sell drinks that are as hot as the sun, then they really need to make that a lot clearer to people. And, uh, you know, instead of just saying hot drink is hot, perhaps they should say it's uh, even hotter than you might anticipate. Um, And don't open the lid for at least five minutes or so to let it cool down just a little bit.
0: So I guess it's a case that can be argued on, on the average. Like she's like, I've spilt coffee on myself before. And like, you know, I've got a red leg from it, but you know, I'm all right. Whereas, you know, now it's literally that scene from Alien where like a tiny bit of the coffee hits the bottom <laughs> of the Nostromo spaceship
1: and burns through seven layers of uh, of sleeping quarters. Exactly. Exactly. And uh, yeah, I can understand that, actually. Um what out of interest, do you know how the jury, because there wouldn't be a jury if this were in England or Wales, but how the jury came to the amount of damages? Because it's still a huge amount of money, isn't it?
0: Um, so, uh, she might be saying it's still at fault for spilling it. The jury agreed with you there too. She was held partially responsible and was only awarded a portion of the settlement. So she wasn't giving right. the whole amount. So she wasn't a millionaire afterwards. She was awarded 640,000 and most of that went towards medical bills. Uh so yeah I take it, it it's america so medical bills would be I think definitely it was solid. No 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 just mcdonald's. Oh was it am it, oh, sorry I, I it was a very tedious segue <laughs> into a story about mcdonald's. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Not yeah. So, yeah, yeah, I, I thought, oh, this is perfect. Scotland, McDonald will sort of uh, lean in there. Uh, yes. So, no, yeah, this is America. And so, uh, it's he's having skin grass, the six cent burns, I mean, I could easily imagine in America with the medical system that it would it could easily amount to quite a lot. So I would say that a majority, a lot of that would have been taken into account with the overall rewards awarded fee, I'm guessing then legal fees, and then on any quality of life thing or something, whatever
1: it had caused her then in damage and pain. So... that's that's my assumption yeah i can see that making sense i can see that making sense i um i think i referred it was either the last podcast or the one before last to the way in which we calculate damages for personal injuries here in england and wales which is by reference to the uh, judicial college uh, and the guidelines that they produce for personal injury cases and uh, for those that are interested in some more information about that Listen to all of the previous podcasts. I certainly m- mentioned it in one of them. Um, but I happen to have in front of me the Judicial College guidelines, and I'm looking at the section on scarring to uh, parts of the body and which are not the face. And interestingly, um, it says here where significant burns cover 40% or more of the body, awards are likely to exceed. What figure do you think, Dean? What What would you think is fair for more than forty percent of the body? Four more, yeah.
0: Um,
1: Bearing in mind our two million old dollar woman,
0: I, I would say this is in England, so I would say over a million.
1: Yeah, it's ninety eight thousand three hundred and eighty pounds, so a good deal more modest. Jeez. And obviously, it would be more depending on the. Extend to the burns, but forty percent or more sort of start around ninety eight thousand three hundred and eighty
0: starts though is that the lowest that you could get for it
1: well that's that's the lowest for significant burns covering forty percent or more of the body.
0: You would hope well, I don't know how that what hope you can get from that I'm, I'm thinking you would hope that that being the lowest that the majority or the average that actually does get awarded is actually quite a bit more than that. And that's just a basis. But then at the same time, that has to be based on probably a case where someone left with the lowest amount at some time, at some point.
1: Uh, Yeah, it's a sort of averaging out process, the uh, Judicial College guidelines. So that's the sort of uh, reasonable low figure that uh, you could look for for a 40% burn victim. Um, so I suppose the the real legal advice that I would give in relation to this issue is that if you're going to get injured, probably do it in the States. Yeah. And then you'll probably recover more money. Or on the face. Or on the face. <laughs> because um, that, that doesn't uh, include the face. I, I, what I also
0: love is the fact that you're like, well, actually, I've got the guidelines in front of me right now. I was just doing a bit of light reading waiting for the Zoom call as i do
1: <laughs> yes for those who don't know i record uh the podcast in my uh office at home so um i was actually preparing a personal injury case which i have tomorrow so uh, i happened to have the guidelines in front of me because i've been reading them for uh for tomorrow's case and so that is that is uh a genuine judicial college guidelines to hand moment there um and so, uh yeah, just let really anyone good. know
0: that actually i record it from the the back room of my house and uh yes i also i have um a pen in front of me as well just to just to join in on all, all the special uh legal stuff and, Excellent. and, and a notepad oh so,
1: yes it, well that's it, basically it, all you need to be a lawyer to be fair <laughs> a
0: pen and 90% a 90 percent of
1: my time is writing things down in a notepad Well, to be fair, I'm all
0: right with it. I'll I'll just be Quincy's assistant to your Quincy.
1: Yes, you can be the one who's secretly always right, but just never (laughs) believed.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Sort of
1: modern-day Cassandra.
0: Um, So that ends the McDonald's lady burning herself on coffee, which we will assume is black coffee to be that hot. I mean, if that was coffee with milk in, then you can only imagine the heat of a black coffee.
1: Well, this is well. Hold on, because this was something I hadn't really thought about. Right? But you said it was one hundred and eighty degrees. One hundred eighty, yeah, one hundred eighty-five. They said at one point. Right. Around. Now this is going to sound really stupid, but we're not a science podcast, so <laughs> I can get away with this. If water boils at one hundred degrees, how was it not just like a bubbling, raging inferno of liquid? Well, I suppose it may have been, but I mean.
0: Is, if you this imagine, a, is this like... an American, 185 degrees?
1: Oh, yeah, because they have their own weird temperature settings, don't they?
0: Yeah, what is that? Let me have a look. see if we can find out first. So 185 degrees in America.
1: Um, yes, I felt foul of this difference between American and English temperature uh, once before, because I'm very proud to say that I have a GCSE in food technology. And in order to get that GCSE... I had to, amongst other things, cook some pastries. And I got a recipe from the internet. You may have heard of it. Um, But it was very much the early days of the internet. And I got a recipe and I cooked it. And uh, the pastry just burst into flames in the oven within about three minutes. And it turned out that I just set the oven up to the highest possible temperature, not realizing that I was supposed to be using uh, a different temperature. I can't remember if it's Celsius we use or Fahrenheit we use. It's Fahrenheit, isn't it? That we uh,
0: use. Yes, yeah, so I'm glad you said that because um, I was just uh, checking. So so 180, no, I think we use Celsius, don't we?
1: Do we? Oh, yeah, because we, we use degrees C, don't we? C <laughs> We're the Celsius. lowest one. <laughs> there we go. That makes there sense. we
0: go. So um, there's there goes a section that made us sound really smart. Um have <laughs> so, uh, a
1: science podcast. It's fine.
0: So 185 degrees Fahrenheit equals 85
1: degrees Celsius. So what's what does water boil at? <laughs> 100... <laughs> water boils at hundred degrees Celsius or Fahrenheit. Yeah, but obviously it's
0: not going to be still boiling when he when he hands it over. No, it's Celsius or Fahrenheit. We need answers, Dean. Oh, 100 degrees Celsius is what what um water boils at. Right. So one
1: hundred eighty Celsius is what in Fahrenheit.
0: Hundred eighty five Fahrenheit is right. eighty five Celsius.
1: So, what's one hundred eighty five Celsius in Fahrenheit?
0: Fucking really hot. I'm guessing. <laughs>
1: well, that's the point,
0: isn't it? Jesus. Um. Oh, okay. Yeah, but they're, they're not talking about one hundred eighty five Celsius. They've obviously put it in one hundred eighty five Fahrenheit. So it was eighty five. It was eighty five Celsius.
1: <laughs> well, that's not very hot then. <laughs> that would, I would be.
0: Expect a coffee to be that hot. If it was 185 Celsius, then it would be 365 <laughs> Fahrenheit. <laughs> it would literally melt the cup. Probably the car.
1: Well, that's what I was thinking when I was imagining this woman taking possession of this boiling liquid. And I mean, it would just be raging out of the cup, wouldn't it?
0: <laughs> yeah, no. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So if it boils at 100 Celsius, then you'd literally be handing her a cup that's like, bubbling like, like a <laughs> cauldron. <laughs> so no wonder, I mean, the fact that she was shocked when she got burnt by it, or even tried to put sugar and milk into it, is... is okay, <laughs> trying to put sugar in it. No, no, So yeah, it was 85 degrees Celsius. Right. So it is, yeah, so it was, it was really still very hot, but it wasn't at boiling temperature. Right. It wasn't at the melting the car temperature right i'm glad we got to the bottom of that though <laughs> see we don't only put this together to educate others but to educate ourselves at the same exactly. time anyway <laughs> now, that seems like the perfect time to move on to uh, our favorite part i call bullshit hooray so I will give you uh, sort of again the overview, the title, if you will, of this case, and then you let me know if you think it's bullshit. So, man who believes he is God sues David Copperfield for stealing his godly powers.
1: Well, the Dickens character,
0: no, the magician. Sorry, sues the magician. (laughs) That definitely would have been something crazy. Yeah. Man who believes he's God sues magician David Copperfield
1: (laughs) for stealing his godly powers. I My first thought is this is probably true Um, because I think there are a lot of people out there that think they're God and I can certainly see them raging against people doing magic. Okay, so tell me more. It is true. It Excellent. is true.
0: Chris Roller is his name. He believes that he is a god. I think he's from Minnesota. This is an American case again. He we believes be not Scotland. Not Scotland, no. <laughs> and not in the center of the sun, like the <laughs> uh, the cup of coffee we thought that, that lady got. <laughs> uh, um, so, yeah. So he basically said that he is God. And he doesn't know how David Copperfield was able to do his tricks. So he went up against Copperfield's company, uh, Disappearing Inc., which is pretty cool. Oh, it's is, quite a clever name. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And to basically say that uh, the only way he could possibly have done it is to steal his powers, his godly powers. And he has, he said originally that it was patented godly powers. <laughs> <laughs> and then technically, it's patent infringement. So, unless David Copperfield showed him how to do the tricks and proved that it wasn't using his uh, divine abilities, then he wanted to sue him for $50 million. So, what are your thoughts well, on one that word.
1: one? Well, the first thing I would say is that Disappearing Ink is a great name. And it reminds me of a very good computer game called Invisible Ink, which is a stealth kind of tactics game uh, where you play as like a like a special agent. You, you're very kind of uh, hiding in the shadows. And that game is called Invisible Ink, which I also thought was an excellent bit of wordplay. Um, but talking about the actual case, I think that this is possibly... Well, I mean, it's one of those interesting things, isn't it? Because it is true. You've told me, and I believe you, that this is a genuine bit of litigation. Um, But again, it seems to speak to this strange American tendency to accept people's money, regardless of how ludicrous their case may be. And I'm particularly interested in whether or not this chap specifically sued uh, David Copperfield's company for an order that he show how the tricks were done or if that was kind of like a pre-court negotiation kind of thing because i suppose in this country the uh, equivalent in principle would be what we would call an injunction for i suppose specific performance or a mandatory injunction which is um, uh, an injunction requiring uh, something to be done in fact specific performance is a contractual thing i think so it'd be a mandatory injunction requiring David Copperfield to disclose his secrets and the way in which he does his magic. And I would love to see a case where a judge is being asked to give somebody an injunction, forcing a magician to disclose their secrets.
0: I think one of the biggest fallbacks here is he says he doesn't know how David Copperfield does these tricks and then claims to be God, and that the only way he could do it is by using his godly powers. So in order to prove any form of patent or, or the fact that he stole it from him using godly powers, surely it would then be on the person, the claimant, to then prove that he has his godly powers and do the trick that David Copperfield does using godly powers so that David Copperfield can then prove that actually he does it in a human way, not in the same way that uh, God this gentleman from Minnesota, Mr. Roller,
1: does it? Yes, I, I think it's probably worth saying that I slightly underplayed the significance of the fact <laughs> this man thought he was God. And uh, you're, you're quite right to <laughs> to put a bit more emphasis on that than I did. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that that's sort of underpinning his whole case, isn't it? Is the idea that he's God and, uh, you know, he would then need to do this. It, it, I mean, I suppose in a sense, he wouldn't necessarily need to do the trick himself. He would just need to demonstrate that there had been some sort of infringement of his own intellectual property. But I don't know to what extent, because I'm not a I'm not a copyright lawyer, and I don't know to what extent one can effectively copyright or patent a process like that. I don't even know if you could, in theory, patent magic. I
0: do. I do think. Well, I'll do will Maybe we can do a magic thing in future, but I think there are specific uh, performance based things that they can patent in that sort of way because they could almost, it's a bit like a performance, like a musical theatre, a show that has a specific director that uses certain directions. So, for instance, uh, if you look at, so Les Mis or Les Miserables. Oh, however you want to pronounce it. There goes me trying to do French again. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, it it recently changed the way that the show runs. It's, it uses a more digital thing. They've changed the direction of the show. And part of that was because Cameron McIntosh wanted to change the direction because when it started, obviously, it wasn't a huge show like it is now. A huge massive all over the world. Obviously at the start, the original direction with the moving stage that they have uh was by whoever they brought in at that time to direct the show. And I think he makes a certain percentage off the show still, while they used his vision, his direction of the show. Um so Cameron Macktosh has technically changed it to almost make it cheaper.
1: Um
0: so like uh, obviously whoever changed and, and has created the new show and, and and directed it is probably making a far less uh, of a fee than the guy before who probably had like a percentage of the overall Ooh. show. And I remember reading that being the reason that they've swapped around. Also, the new version actually does look better. So maybe it's just a happy coincidence. But with that in mind, given the fact that the way that the show works and the way a show can be directed, surely then if there's a specific thing that's very David Copperfield, that for someone to be able to do that in the way that he does it, at least in the way that he does it, would then be, could be copyrighted. If it's a very, very different thing like the time he made the empire estate building disappear
1: did he do that i don't know anything about david copperfield i've heard the name i know that he is some sort of magic man but is he, is he the one that went in like the big perspex box
0: no that was david blaine
1: uh, okay so what's david copperfield's big thing
0: david copperfield he, he's your old school he's just uh sigfried and roy type of
1: oh okay are so they magicians cut, maybe i think of pen and hell. teller
0: that i think they just run around with with lions or so tigers um, oh yeah that's right but yeah i was also thinking of pen and teller yeah he yeah he, he was he's kind of before those guys who do like crazy things very theatrical very um I, he did this live on tv made it disappear so it was obviously a camera trick I don't think they moved the Statue of Liberty and I don't think <laughs> he actually has magical powers. I mean, it would be great if in the middle of this law thing, God against like David Copperfield, they just whop out their wands. <laughs> <laughs> like Avada Kedavra. They're just going at it like a proper wizard fight. <laughs> it's just like the whole court's just, Oh my God.
1: <laughs> but Yeah. I mean, it, yeah, it's interesting. I, um, I don't really sort of follow magic as a thing. So I don't know to what extent a lot of magic is kind of building on original foundations or if there's a lot of innovation in in the field of of magic. And I suppose if there is innovation, then as you say, you can kind of presumably copyright um, particular tricks or whatever that you might
0: well, I think if you if you name the person who, who does those kinds of things, I think there are some that uh, are like everyone's. But often when you see someone do the whole in the tank, in the jacket with the padlocks on, can you escape a tank yeah. full of water, that kind of classic, people will usually mention someone like Harry Houdini and be like, oh, Houdini did this, and at least mention them.
1: But uh, is, so, that, is that deliberately so that they then don't have to pay, effectively, royalties because they are crediting the the trick with harry houdini well you think so but then
0: again in this case every time he did his trick he can just go i'd like to thank god for giving me this (laughs) trick and then therefore he's uh this guy who believes he's god yeah gets to sit back and and feel oh yeah i've been well and truly credited but at the same time you know most people will sit at home and not
1: think oh god that guy in minnesota yeah that's true. That's true. I'd be interested to know what this guy produced as evidence that he was God. Because like you said, there must have been some something to give him that. Well,
0: that I freedom. think it I think it was nothing and they they basically said he hadn't patented trick. So although he can claim he's God and therefore the trick is is patented, that um they're like, There is no patent. You haven't patented it. You, there is no paperwork for this. So uh they were on about him relinquishing the claim. Uh, and then he changed the claim near the end, because I think they're allowed one change of claim or or something along those lines, and he said that um some magicians wanted to kill him. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Okay, well, that's quite a big change. And then they
0: argued that his claims are frivolous and unsupported by existing law. Copperfield had a motion for sanctions and wanted to seek fees and costs, as well as order barring Roller from filing further lawsuits in this district, because I believe he had also done it once before. So so it involved allegations of godlike powers and far-reaching conspiracies. So I think we've got to the end. They recommended that Copperfield's motion to dismiss was granted, cup of field's motion for sanctions was denied
1: oh interesting
0: all claims in this litigation be dismissed with prejudice what does it mean with
1: prejudice do you know if, uh... Uh, i don't know that's a purely uh, american thing um so it's not something that we have here Um, i'm assuming we we have a thing in england and wales which is to mark uh something as being totally without merit So if you make an application to the court and it's dismissed, uh, the court should consider whether to mark the application as totally without merit. And uh, it may well be that dismissing something with prejudice is a sort of equivalent of of demonstrating that it was wholly unmeritorious. And the the point of doing that is that if there are uh, applications made by somebody which are totally without merit then the judge has to consider whether or not to impose what's known as a civil restraint order on the uh, applicant. And that strikes me as a very similar thing to what David Copperfield was asking for in this case, which was to try and prevent uh, further litigation happening elsewhere. Um, because you do get a similar thing here where somebody will constantly try and sue someone or constantly make applications in existing proceedings. Yeah,
0: could it be because... Um, <clears throat> Maybe they deny it because there's a lot more money in that kind of thing in America.
1: Yes, quite possibly. Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, I suppose that's the thing. It saves costs and it saves time. Yeah. Um,
0: so yeah, it was dismissed with prejudice. Um, maybe the guy who thinks he's God was happy with what he did, and he left with pride and prejudice. So, <laughs> <laughs> and all of a non-dispositive emotions uh, were denied as moot so yeah and i believe uh, i haven't looked into that but um that he's not the only magician i believe he also went up against david blaine the one in the purple perplex- uh, man in the box, box. yeah yeah, yeah um, he's
1: a weird guy isn't he david blaine
0: Good yeah Lord. well sometimes with magicians you've got you have to think where is it is it a character that they live as mm. have you ever seen the film the prestige <laughs> Mm. sorry have I seen more sorry the film The Prestige I have not No,
1: We've
0: with Christopher Nolan film before he did Batman had Christian Bale and like Hugh Jackman Michael Caine Michael Caine's in almost
1: every one of his films so yeah he's uh, in pretty much um, everything no I've not seen it but that is a hell of a cast
0: yeah so it's a really good film very twisty and it's about two warring magicians um actual based in sort of well no, it goes a bit supernatural near the end but actually based in reality magicians not like two warring wizards as in like yeah (laughs) uh, in in like the olden days in in your sort of um houdini era and it's just about like them christian bale like lives his act like he just he lives it every day and it also helps him hide tricks and things like that by living it constantly Hugh Jackman is just a bit more of a showman but they hate each other it's a really really good film but it just sort of reminds me of that that's when you see these sort of crazy magicians and you're like I don't think he could be like that I mean I don't think David Blaine's stuff is magic
1: he's like no. I'm gonna sit in a box yeah I mean I could probably sit in a box although I'm afraid of heights so wouldn't be really worth for me <laughs> yeah but. a box on the floor
0: yeah I could sit in a box on the floor with an access Absolutely. to a toilet and
1: and a kitchen and some food. So a yeah. house. <laughs> yes,
0: exactly. <laughs>
1: exactly. I mean, that's the thing with David Blaine. At what point are you just watching a man crap in a box?
0: <laughs> well, yeah, that brings back memories of camping as a child. No, um, <laughs> yeah, it's he's more of a, from the things he does, it's more of like, he trains himself to push the limits of what a person can do which i don't think you can technically put down as magic i mean i know no, his first shows like literally when he was first introduced he went around doing magic tricks on the streets sort of like dynamo style and i think he used a lot of camera tricks in it that might be blasphemy to the magic community if anyone's listening from that community <laughs> but then he just sort of went into public publicity stunts isn't yeah. there one where he's like floating in water for ages with just a mask on. So. Yeah, he to like, hold so. his breath. Yeah, okay, I do He's really done really lots of crazy stuff. stuff. Yeah. So it just seems like he, he goes away for a year or two, trains himself for some mad experiment, like how to hold his breath and goes and does all this stuff and then just does a huge public stunt, which um, isn't really magic.
1: No, it's more of a sort of um, bare grills but turned up to 11 sort of situation. Oh my God. There's an idea for a show.
0: So if this ever gets popular enough, this podcast, I would like everyone to start spending hashtag Bear Grylls versus David Blaine TV series. (laughs) (laughs) Or we drop them both in the middle of a desert. I
1: thought you were going to say we should try and get them both on this show.
0: Oh, that would be good. Yeah, that's where we can start it. I'd be well for that. About the laws of magic. Maybe you can give us more information on the time you met God in
1: court. Exactly. Exactly. Well, the weird thing is, of course, David Blaine could be here right now.
0: He might just be invisible. Yeah, that's his, his next one is, he's trained for three years to be invisible in your house. <laughs> so it was just magic that the page on your desk just happened to be at the right place to look at scolding and
1: scouring. <laughs> it's kind of slightly creeping me out, though, that there might be David Blaine now living in my house. Oh, yeah, that's I'm sorry. No, no, it, that, that's fine. It's just something I'm going to have to live with now.
0: Well, just remember, if you listen to this podcast, if anything has happened to Michael within the next couple of days, then our prime suspect is David Blaine. (laughs) (laughs) So we'll leave it there after accusing David Blaine of the possible murder of uh, Mike Trevelyan. I hope you've enjoyed listening to today's podcast as we have um, presenting it to you. Uh, Do you have anything to say, Michael?
1: I do. Um, The guy that played Quincy was a chap called Jack Klugman, and uh he died in 2012 never let it be said that we are not diligent with our research there you go
0: so um in memory of quincy this episode is (laughs) (laughs) this is our
1: this is our jack klugman uh testimonial episode (laughs) in loving memory of quincy i'll put some sad music in If
0: you know of any strange court or legal cases you would like us to discuss on the show, feel free to email us at holding.court@outlook.com. at outlook.com.